All right, all right. We got Marie Noel on the radio show. Let's go. <laughs> Hi everyone, welcome to the Brentus Foundation podcast, where we throw light on some of the African continent's biggest and most pressing issues and leverage best practice, not just on what to do, but how to do it. I'm Marie Noel, and it's a pleasure to share this space and time with you. So on today's episode, I'll be speaking with a remarkable son of the soil. Uh, joining me in a conversation is Efosa Odromo. Efosa Ojomo is a senior research fellow at the Clay Christensen Institute for Disruptive Innovation. His work focuses on understanding how best to create prosperity in low and middle income countries. In January 2019, Efosa alongside co-authors Karen Dillon and the late Professor Clay Christensen released The Prosperity Paradox, How Innovation Can Lift Nations Out of Poverty. This book focuses on the important role of innovation in the process of creating prosperity across the globe. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. All right, without further ado, let's get straight into the chat with Efosa because this was a good one. In fact, a fantastic chat and I hope you enjoy it. Efosa, it's really good to have you here. Welcome. <laughs> it's my pleasure to be here, Marie. I'm so excited to uh, chat with you and, and learn from you today. Thank you. Likewise. All right, so let's go ahead. But before we get started, to get us sort of warmed up, I thought we could engage in a very uh, quick and short game to familiarize the audience with who you are. Are you ready? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm ready. Well, first of all, audience, if you're listening, I didn't know I was going to be playing a game. So if she wins, she's got the upper hand. Uh, but let's go. I'm a quick study. So no. let's go. No worries. I definitely will not win because it's just about you. Anyway, Ephesus, what was the first job on your resume? First job on my resume had to be uh, working as an engineer at a company called National Instruments. Who I think that? that's the first job on my resume. The first legit job, though, was um, working as a janitor in college, uh, you know, cleaning out the trash and the bathrooms and stuff like that and so yeah, life's a journey where you, a journey. Where, you, where you start is not always where you end <laughs> i can definitely identify with that i worked in the cafeteria at university so i i know that a little bit about that all too well i, I right. did that too i flipped those burgers <laughs> <laughs> all right officer how many languages do you speak uh one and a half <laughs> what is the health <laughs> Uh, yeah, pigeon English. <laughs> one and one and a half. I think it's two, but some people say it's not two. So I will say one and a half. I definitely speak more than one. That's right. <laughs> right. Sounds good. Yeah, do huh? you have any? And do you have any hobbies or skills that people don't know about? Well, I guess a lot of people don't know about. Hobbies or skills? Well, I I really just like chilling, man. I really, if that's a hobby then I like chilling. Um, some I people like hiking, like doing stuff outside, running. No, 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 no. I like chilling. <laughs> you like chilling. That's my kind of person. All right. What best describes your work day, an average work day? Average work day is a series of uh, conversations, uh, emails, and on a good work day, I have the time to sit back, relax, put on some music, drink some coffee, and do some thinking and writing. I love the process of creating an, an, an idea 
putting it out into the world and just learning how people react to it. So, yeah. I actually really appreciate that because I was having a conversation with a friend, you know, recently about this idea of even thinking. And it's like sometimes people are like, well, you're, you know, you're just sitting there wasting time, not doing anything, like somebody just throwing balls. But I'm like, we underestimate the that process or the time that goes into actually thinking about things. So I actually appreciate that you said that. I, I, I don't think a lot of people do value that as much. So. Yeah, I think so. I think if we did more thinking, less tweeting, the world would be a better place. How about that? Hashtag. Hashtag. <laughs> Somebody how, don't hashtag that. that. More thinking, less tweeting. How less about that? Tweeting. <laughs> we definitely need to make that hashtag. All right. <laughs> Are you a zero inbox person, Eposa? I try to be, but I'm not. I think I've got about 65 right now. I'm working my way down. It was over 100. Wow. Um, you know, I was on on I was I was traveling. Uh, I think it was last week or two weeks ago. So, um, but I, I try I try to be, but it's it's not like every mm -hmm. single email. And maybe your 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 listeners already know this. Email is work. Every email you send somebody, you're essentially giving that person work. And there's no email that's like, oh, you just want a million dollars. It's like, oh, can you send me this document? Oh, can you look this over? Oh, can we schedule a meeting? It's extra work. Yeah. And so I got 65 pieces of extra work in my inbox that I have to do. And by the time I'm done with this conversation, it's probably going to be 75. <laughs> oh, yeah, I love that. What is the one skill that you underestimated but has served you really well um, at work? Uh, one skill I underestimated. I don't even know if it came up as a skill, but just the ability to sit back, relax, and listen. Mm. Um, to, to listen to people when they talk. Because a lot of times people say things, they use words, but you have to, you have to be able to truly understand what they're saying yeah. um, based on what they're not articulating. Um, and that you have to listen, uh, truly have to. Where is this person coming from? What's the context in which they find themselves? Why are they reacting this way? Why are they saying these things? And and that really helps you uh, empathize uh, with with people, even when you disagree uh, with them. So, wow, that's amazing. All right, so what was the last aha moment you had, and why? Or what was it about? Uh, last aha moment is actually connected to a uh, to an idea that I'm 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 working on. Um, it's going to take me a while to write this, but it occurred to me maybe a month ago that the best way and perhaps the kindest uh, way to help the poor is to profit from them. Uh, it's paradoxical, uh, but it's an idea that I've been developing since I got the aha moment. And maybe I'll test it out with the audience here real quick. Um, there are two ways we can profit from the poor. One is to sell them products that can help them. And the other one is to buy their time. And so you essentially hire them for work. And when you think about how virtually every country that has escaped poverty and created prosperity has done it, They've done it by profiting from the poor. They've done it by selling them products uh, that were simple and affordable so they could afford and it could help them make progress in some way, you know, whether it was cars, sewing machines or food. 
And they've also figured out how to buy their time. And so give them jobs. Uh, they work for you. And then you pay them something. Hmm. And when you think about that concept, it's very simple. But all of us who work for organizations are currently being profited off of. Right? The organization buys our time. They pay us, pay us a salary at the end of the month. And for an organization to be prof profitable and sustainable, it has to profit off of everyone who works there. And so it is introducing the concept to the world that to profit off someone is not to exploit them, but is to serve them in a way that creates value. And so I really want to um, develop the, those thoughts, um, you know, connected to research that's already been done and then write something that can help people rethink uh, how they even view uh, you know people who are poor and how may how they may they may they may they may, uh, they may even do their work so that's the last aha moment i had wow you know that's big on some level is it also exchanging value yeah absolutely it is it is definitely exchanging value um, um and that might actually go into the piece uh, because that framing is key. For you and I to exchange value, I have to believe you have value to give me. Yeah. Unfortunately, when we, we, um, we who are wealthy, we who are rich, we who define what poverty is, even though we've never lived in poverty, when we think about the poor, um, I'm afraid the programs we develop uh, treat them as if they don't have any value to give. They are beneficiaries. We got to help them. We got to give them. We got to lift them up. Yeah. But poor people are the most hardworking people I ever met in my life. I don't work as hard as they do. Um, and if I were poor, I think I'd be dead because it's really, really hard to be poor. And so when we think about them, from the standpoint of exchanging value, we begin to ask ourselves different questions. We begin to ask, um, well, first of all, we begin to see them not just as, uh, we begin to see them only as poor, not as poor and helpless and stupid and and like, you know, they can't help themselves. That, that, that I think that is how many programs are designed or developed, uh, unfortunately. I don't think it's the intention, but if you look at the results and the outcomes, whether it's a program that goes into a community, you build a bunch of wells, or you give out cash transfers to people and so, and so on, we design them in a way that says, let me give you value. There's nothing you can give me. There's nothing I want from you. It's, I mean, it's no, like I'm a rich person and you can't give me yeah. anything. But when we think about the idea of profiting off the poor, then I think we have to think about exchange of value um, and we have to think about them in a different light. It is what the Chinese have done over the past four or five decades. It is what the South Koreans did when they uh, were emerging from the Korean War. It's what the Japanese did after they were getting out of the uh, Second World War. And it's what the United States did um, uh, to emerge uh, as the richest country in the world. Well, I, I suppose China now technically might be the richest, but um, it's, it's what every prosperous country has done. Hmm. And so 
um, I do think your language of exchanging value is absolutely key. So, yeah. Awesome. All right. Imagine we haven't even started the actual podcast. I'm like, we could we could end right here, but we won't. Don't go away. All right. So what comes to mind when you hear Africa in 2050? Uh, what comes to mind? Uh, I, I mean, I think, uh, you know, a population of over two billion people, uh, a lot of young uh, uh, people on the continent, a lot of energy uh, and uh, a lot of potential. Hmm. Now, the reason I still say the word potential, Africa has always been the continent of potential, but potential is something that must be realized uh, by itself. It's not worth a lot. It must be realized. Um, the reason I say that is um, I don't see the mechanisms being put in place to give us an Africa in 2050 uh, where this, its potential will be realized. Mm. Uh, and that's because I don't see a lot of investments going into a certain type of innovation uh, called market creating innovations. And, 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 and I guess we'll talk about that here uh, through the course of the program. But those innovations are incredibly powerful and transformative to help societies develop. Um, and, and so I, I unfortunately still see a huge population, very young still a lot of potential. Um, yeah. yeah, that's amazing. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for indulging in this game. We're going to go straight into it. And actually, I think from where we left, I'm just going to start or change where I was hoping to start from. But you wrote, um, and I believe this was in uh, the book Perspective Projects, all the 1059 things I have read from you, um, that alleviating poverty is not the same as creating prosperity. Can you share a little bit about that idea? Because I think it's quite important and it's like one of the things we need to understand properly, but I don't know that we always understand that or focus on that. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that, Marina. Well, um, alleviating poverty and creating prosperity are fundamentally different things. And um, I think when, when I think about the two and the distinction, um, what it helps me with is it anchors me on what the destination is. And I'll, I'll give an example. Uh, the first time I went into a poor community, I um, saw they didn't have access to water and I just wanted to help them with water. So again, to your earlier point about exchange of value, there was nothing they could give me. I was just there to give them stuff. And so I you know, raised some money and I built a well. And um, the well that I built maybe cost about $10,000. I provided water for maybe six months and then it broke. Um, mm. I figured out how to fix it, you know, and got somebody to go in there, fix the well. Uh, it broke again after a few more months. Um, anyways, those activities, you know, looking at the community, you don't have much to give. Hey, you need water. Let me give you water those activities were anchored in alleviating poverty, alleviating the suffering. Now, if I had a different view, uh, if, I, if I went into the community and said, I wanna create prosperity here. I want like people to have access, access to, to uh, opportunity, really. That is, that is uh, the, the fundamental difference uh, with po alleviating poverty and creating prosperity is, people wake up every day and they have access to opportunity that they can grasp, opportunity mm. to improve their lives economically, socially, politically, 
um, and so on and so forth, I would have thought very differently about uh, the fact that they didn't have access to water in the community. I would have asked different questions. Why don't you have access to water? Um, what has anyone ever tried to give you water before? Did it work? Did it not work? Uh, what happens if we build a well here and it breaks? Uh, are there people around who can fix well skills we need to develop uh, such that they can start well building businesses? I mean, it, it would have led me on a fundamentally different path. Yeah. And so um, I think that idea uh, simple as it sounds, uh, the, you know, the difference between alleviating poverty and creating prosperity is a microcosm of the, the larger, what I would say, development industry. There are many programs designed to alleviate poverty. Unfortunately, uh, they are treating symptoms of a much deeper problem. They are not getting at the root cause because um, what I always share with people is the path to prosperity goes through poverty alleviation. But poverty alleviation, unfortunately, still leaves everybody poor. Now, we've been alleviating poverty in Africa for how many decades? It's still a very poor continent. So mm -hmm. I, I have no more uh, uh, desire, if you will, to alleviate poverty. Uh, <laughs> it, it does no good. Plus, we defined what poverty is. I have never met somebody living on less than $2 a day who maybe starts to live on $3 a day as a result of some anti-poverty program, and they have a party. They have mm -hmm. a I, I escape poverty party. And so we have to ask ourselves hard questions. Yeah. Um, anyway, sorry, I, I can keep going, but- uh, No, I uh, appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> can you, when, when did the pin drop for you? Was it, mm. you know, after you went back to fix the well, you know, the second time? Was it, you know, when you started working with, like, when did it drop? What was that moment like for you? Uh, it dropped for me when I uh, began to interact with Professor Clay Christensen, who unfortunately mm -hmm. passed away in January 2020. But he, uh, Professor, was a, a professor at Harvard Business School. Uh, he's the architect of disruptive innovation. So if any of your listeners have heard that, he coined that term, uh, helped mm -hmm. a lot of executives, managers, and business people make a ton of money using his theories. Um, and it's helped transform some, some, some organizations and industries. Um, uh, the pin dropped for me when I started interacting with him because I noticed he talked a lot about prosperity. He didn't talk about poverty. He talked a lot about how we can help people lead um, more full lives. And it occurred to me that he saw the humanity in people. Um, he didn't just see them as uh, people who were poor and helpless and just couldn't couldn't get by. He understood that every country at some point was really poor and agrarian. Somehow, people had figured out how to create prosperity, how to value life. Um, and it didn't happen because there was sort of this come to Jesus moment where the authorities were like, oh, we've been mean to people, we've been corrupt, let us be better tomorrow. Uh, how development in wealthy countries happened. Yeah, if we look at the bastions of democracy, we look at Europe, we look at the United States, 
I, these were places where you know, Europe had, had monarchs and kings and, mm-hmm. and, and they would exploit people. Um, yeah. And so, I mean, how, how do they then go from that to democracy, right? Um, and to not just democracy without development, which is what we are practicing in many African countries, but like democracy with development. And, and, and when you actually pull back the covers, you see a lot of um, innovators who saw people as people and they wanted to help them make progress. They said, man, how can I relieve some of your struggle? And when you do that, you are able to create new markets that help people make progress. And anyway, so so I think for me, it, it really happened when I started to learn from Clay Christensen, who, who taught me how to see the world differently. No, amazing. And I know one of the things that sort of came out of the research that you all did um, was this idea of, you know, market creating or market generating innovations and also this idea of targeting like non-consumption. Can you shed a little bit, you know, more light on that topic for the audience right now um, and what that means also for, let's say, like the quote unquote policy making folks? Uh, yeah, so. Um... First of all, there, there are largely three types of innovations because uh, I think that's important to understand. Uh, and they have different impacts on the economy. So the first type is, you know, what we call sustaining innovations is where you make good products better, right? So you put like heated seats in a car or a new uh, cell phone camera in a cell phone. Those products are typically sold to people who can already afford existing products on the market. They have uh, little development impact, if any. You're using the same distribution channels, sales channels, and so on. Uh, you sell it to people who can already afford. They're important, but they're very different impact. Efficiency mm-hmm. innovation are the second types of innovations. Innovations that help you do more with less. And so when you outsource operations or when you leverage automation or when you um, inc- you know, introduce some software into your, your processes and systems and it helps you become a lot better. Uh, I think uh, those are important because they help you reduce the cost of serving existing customers. You free up cash flows, Uh, but they can actually have a negative impact on development because you, you know, what happens when you outsource stuff, you, you let people go. Um, Mm. And so the the, the development impact in that region are, um, are are devastating. The third type, which is what we uh, write about and think about and talk about a lot, is market-creating innovations. Mm. These are innovations that transform complicated and expensive products into products that are simple and affordable so that many, many, many more people in society can afford them. Mm. And market-creating innovations, uh, we have found, are sort of the foundation of ma- the, 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 the development of many Uh, many countries. Uh, These innovations target uh, what we call non-consumers, people who would benefit from gaining access to a product or service, but because of certain barriers, they're not able to to get access uh, to these products and services. Um, When you create a new market, uh, a lot of amazing things happen. And so the example I often give in in Africa is, look at the mobile phone, now, mobile telecommunications uh, market that was created. Today, you have a billion plus subscriptions, uh, millions of jobs uh, to support that industry. Um, 
uh, hundreds of millions of taxes uh, paid uh, to different governments, uh, and the productivity uh, has increased. Uh, people no longer have to, you know, go from point A to point B just to send a message. You can make a call. That is the kind of impact that you can have when you create a new uh, market. And so I often say, you know, can we do for, you know, healthcare, education, housing, um, other sectors, what we've done for mobile telco? It's mm. that kind of thinking that can help us make progress. Now, from a policymaker standpoint, I think it's important to understand how business activity impacts development. The government, um, I, I hope they don't get mad at me. Um, the government policymakers tend not to create value, not because they don't want to, is just by design. Um, every year, the government looks at their budget and they say, okay, how much budget can we get? How much can we borrow? How much revenues are we raising? How does the government raise money? Well, they tax people. Um, and so you and I might go into society and create value. And the government says, by virtue of you creating that value here in this space, you need a license, you need mm -hmm. to pay some kind of tax. So we create value, the government taxes it, which is fine, and they get that a little cut, right? So the government takes that and then they redistribute. They say, okay, based on what we've been able to collect, we will build roads, we will pay salaries, we will build uh, schools, whatever, right? Now, when you begin to simplify how governments function, you realize if we are not creating value, there is nothing for the government to tax or to take a little bit off. And there is a very direct correlation, if not causation, of the ability for governments to tax productivity in its society and the ability for the government to uh, uh, borrow from uh, other lenders, right? Because it affects their ability to pay back. Mm -hmm. And so you can have the U.S. borrowing at zero interest rates or very low, and then you have governments like Nigeria, Ghana, who are poorer, borrowing at much higher interest rates. It's the same as individuals and, and their ability to get um, um, access to credit, right? And so when I think about it this way, uh, and I hope the policymakers who are listening uh, see it this way, is our jobs as government folks has to be first and foremost, how do we inspire uh, productivity, market creating activity in this region? And then after we do that, we can then start talking about, okay, uh, let's go, you know, develop a program to help folks in a rural area or do this or do that. But if we don't have the base right, it's mm -hmm. going to be very hard for us to make any kind of sustainable progress. Yeah, no, certainly. And from, you know, I guess some of the experiences that you've had or the research that you've done, are there certain things that come to mind when you think about how do we inspire these types of activities um, uh, in economies? Are there particular things that come to mind? Um, it, it, so, so far, it's, it's not, uh, it's not really rocket science. Mm. Uh, um, 
so far. I, 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 the more I learn and interact with people, because okay, let me step back. I think there are a couple of ways I can answer that. The first is give some kind of academic theoretical answer. And oh, the government should do this and do that. If you look at the, the way this country did this, they um, they had a lot of uh, conferences and meetings and they, they brought people together. And I mean, governments do that all the time. So I, they don't need me to say that. Um, I think the more I interact with <clears throat> governments, um, the more I learn many governments today, especially governments in poorer countries, uh, have burdened themselves with so, so much for whatever reason, whether they try to look at what governments in rich countries are doing and say, let's do that as well. They've burdened themselves with so much that they cannot possibly do. And just to put this in perspective, right, the government in like the U.S., federal government spends $20,000 per person per year. Governments in Nigeria is spending like $150-$200. Uh, in Ghana, I think you're spending a little bit more uh, just because, you know, you have fewer people uh, in Ghana. Uh, Kenya, maybe three, dollars $400. Um, Norway is spending thirty-five grand. How in the world can we do <laughs> what the government of Norway is doing for its citizens. It's not possible. Yeah. Uh, but we have burdened ourselves with all these activities. And so you have a lot of government people running around trying to do these things, but they can never do them. So I think the first uh, sort of observation is, um, is relax. <laughs> it's, no, no, it's truly relax. Um, and instead of saying, what can we do? Ask yourself a different question. What can we do as a government? Ask yourself, um, what can we enable the private sector to do? It's very similar to alleviating poverty and creating prosperity. It's a fundamentally different question. Forget what can we do? How can we create jobs? How can we build roads? How can we build hospitals? Forget that. You cannot. I'm here to tell you you cannot, and I'm here to relieve you of the pain and pressure. If anybody in your country says, well, why are you not doing this? Tell them to come talk to a FOSA, right? <laughs> you cannot do it. Your question must be, should be, how can we partner with the private sector to make this happen? When you begin to ask different questions, I I guarantee you, you will come up with innovative solutions that can actually help people make progress and create prosperity. But until we ask different questions, I'm afraid we're not going to be able to come up with diff different solutions. You know, I always tell people the, you know, the right answer, no matter how right it is, to the wrong question remains the wrong answer. Wrong answer. <laughs> when taken. Um... No, that's sheesh. That's amazing. And I think I, I, I sort of remember a bit of that. And I, I believe it was an article you wrote about, you know, government can, but it shouldn't do everything. Um, and I think that's that's a very good point. And I don't know that a lot of people think of things that way, especially with this, you know, sort of big man savior mentality and stuff that we have around a lot of things. But one mm -hmm. thing I wanted to touch on, right, is corruption, right? This <laughs> this oh wrong that just <laughs> this wrong that just never <laughs> ceases to go away. And I think <laughs> it's very interesting for me because um <laughs> it's it's one of the things that, you know, we 
you, I guess, um, if I listen, if I heard correctly, I believe it was your TED talk actually, uh, talked about how, you know, we are almost thinking about this wrongly. Um, and if I remember correctly, is this idea that even in some cases or in some places, sometimes it's almost the logical thing for people to do. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and why we are thinking about corruption like wrongly? Well, thank you. Um, I, I don't think it's, I, I wanna be very clear. It's not sometimes in some places in a majority of places in the world, it is always the more logical thing to do. I want to be very clear because I don't want people to say, oh, you know, no, no, no. What we have done with corruption is we've moralized it mm. and we've said it is bad. You shouldn't do it. And so we do not allow ourselves to be intelligent about it. Absolutely, it is bad. Absolutely, people who steal money, embezzle, collect bribes they shouldn't do it, right? I mean, no, nobody's going to argue with that, right? I mean, um, but that is not a scientific response to a problem. When you meet somebody who has cancer, you don't say you shouldn't have cancer, that, that is so bad, you know, and you leave it there. We try to understand it. Why did it come? What is it doing to the body? How might we get rid of it? With corruption, we don't even allow ourselves to think that way. We moralize it and we hold anti-corruption seminars and tell people they should not steal money, they should not money launder, they should not launder money and, and embezzle. I mean, anybody who's stealing knows they shouldn't steal. Yeah. You know? I mean, if you think they don't know, go steal their stuff and they'll they'll they'll, they'll get pissed. So, so let's stop playing games. What we mm -hmm. need to do is understand what are the circumstances that cause people to steal money? Mm. Let's understand that. If those circumstances do not change, and most of those circumstances do not change in poor countries and in low middle income countries, they don't change, then I'm afraid those countries will continue to be corrupt. Look at the Transparency International Corruption Perception Index. It has not changed for the last two, three decades. I mean, well, we publish the thing every year, the poor countries are at the bottom for the most part. The rich countries are at the top. Mm -hmm. I, you know what? I could publish that report for the next 10 years. I could tell you I don't need to do any studies. Finland, uh, Switzerland, uh, the U.S. Could probably going to be about 20, depending on who we have in power. Right? I think we lost a few points with Donald Trump. But it's not going to change. Now, what we mm -hmm. need to understand is what are the circumstances, if we really want to solve this, that cause people to be corrupt? That's yeah. a different question. Um, wait, let's stop moralizing the thing because the poor continue to suffer. And when we hold ourselves in this like high horse, like I am better than you, stop stealing money, um, the poor continue to suffer, right? Mm -hmm. And we get brownie points for being, you know, like you're, you're the you're the you're the uh, anti-corruption czar or savior, but. Are we really solving problems? And so we have to understand why do people hire corruption? Why do people invite it into their lives? And what we find is in most societies, it is the, it's often the most expedient way to make progress. It is the most expedient way to solve a problem. If it remains the most expedient way to solve a problem, I'm afraid corruption will continue 
to thrive. Now, when you juxtapose that with the data point I presented earlier about how poor poor countries are vis-a-vis the amount of money the government spend per citizens every year, right? Mm-hmm. Nigeria is spending $200 a year. Uh, Colombia is spending maybe $2,000 a year. It is very difficult to expect the Nigerian government to effectively mm-hmm. um, combat corruption. Yeah. It's very difficult. On $200 a year, it's just very difficult. It's uh, it's not going to happen. And so I think we should take a page from, um, and I'll land a plane here, from um, a book um, um, by uh, Professor Yuan Yuan Ang at uh, University of Michigan. She, she mm-hmm. wrote a book called um, China's Gilded Age, the paradox of economic boom and, and vast corruption, something like that. Now she says, look, let's categorize corruption differently. There's access money, there is uh, embezzlement, there is petty crime and uh, grand theft. Um, there, there, there's, yeah, like, I think four main categories. And she says there actually, there's actually evidence that shows growth and development can thrive in spite of corruption. So if we look at China's growth and development, we see vast corruption and uh, a lot of development has happened. And so she's not advocating for corruption, but she is saying, let us understand it. Let us see if realistically we cannot sweep it under the rug and throw it away, how might we then leverage it to help people? No, yeah, we have to make progress in this regard. Um, I'm afraid if we don't, you and I in 2050 are going to be talking about corruption the same way we're talking about it now, when if we simply ask different questions, try to understand it better, oh my goodness, the kinds of progress we can make. Because that's what it's about. You know, Marie Noel, you and I, we live in a world where Um, I cannot conceive of a a life where I would ever hunger for food. Even if I lose my job today and nobody wants me to come talk at a podcast or whatever, I have such a strong network that I would just go move in with a friend (laughs) or a family. But there are people suffering in the world Mm -hmm. who, 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 who don't have access And so we cannot be moralizing an issue that we've been moralizing for decades, yet made little progress. It's about prosperity, right? And so we have to ask different questions. No, no, I, I definitely appreciate that point so much. And it's, it's this idea of asking different questions, even more questions is, it's something that we need to do quite a bit of. And I think uh, the first thing that came to mind, actually, when you were talking about that was uh, a book uh, I read a couple years ago, and I'm like, should I even be mentioning this? And I think it was by Bill Easterly, um, where he talks yeah, yeah. about the of like searches and like ask more questions, finding it different, because it's like we've been doing this for you know, in one way for the longest time, and it's not producing the results. We can't keep doing the same thing. We need to approach it differently and that's asking more questions actually of the people that we claim we want to help and how we can actually help um the issue and not you know doing the same things 
as a yeah. new than anything. And we don't want to be talking about potential in 2050. I mean, it's, it's like, wait, wait, wait. everybody's kind of tired of that narrative. Not everybody, because some people don't even have the luxury to be tired of that narrative, but yes. Um, all right, so I know that you are sort of a fervent advocate of like entrepreneurs, entrepreneurial activity. Um, and what, one thing I wanted to talk a bit more about this idea of government allowing or enabling, you know, sort of people mm -hmm, to do mm -hmm. things. What, what can or perhaps should those types of collaborations look like, practically speaking? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a hard question because I, I would then ask you another question, uh, like where are we talking about? What sector are we talking about? Uh, and I think um, we we who are trying to make progress in this regard or at least from a from a thinking standpoint is we have to be humble um to know we don't have all the answers the best we can do is ask questions yeah. if uh you know you just asked me a question akin to um somebody walking into a doctor's office and saying doctor what would you prescribe <laughs> yeah now the doctor doesn't know like what what is your ailment are you like how sick have you been are you allergic to any medication how much money do you have if i prescribe this thing are you going to be able to do it and well, so exactly. it it's hard yeah right and we know what healthy people look like but you are not healthy i have to understand your sickness and the circumstances mm -hmm. around it and then i can say okay here's a path that can get you to health and so yeah. when you ask a question like that i have to think are we talking about a state government, a local government, a federal government? Are we talking about a government heavily resourced? Are we talking about an individual in government who is progressive, who is really trying uh, to get things done, um, but he or she is, is, is being met with a, a lot of roadblocks, right? Um, I, I think it's important to understand the circumstances that mm. people find themselves. And then we can from there say, okay, here's what you have to deal with. Here are your, in our language, we say, here are your capabilities, right? And uh, your capabilities are made up of your resources, right? So how much access do you have to money, to people, to talent, to relationships, partnerships, and so on? That's your resources. And then your processes. What are the existing processes that exist within your organization that are going to hinder progress or are going to uh, advance or foster progress? And so if you do a budget allocation every year and you already have your budget, if you, uh, you know, there are 80% of people who work in your organization, the government organization, don't do anything, but you can't fire them. <laughs> that's part of that's, you know, that's, that all that has to feed into how one answers yeah. that question. And then the priorities, that's the last part. What does this organization exist to do uh, in the context of the people we have in it and what the uh, public expects from us, right? So we have to ask that. Uh, once we understand your capabilities, then we can say, okay, based on this, here's how you can take the next step. Um, and so I, I am often afraid to give generic answers because, I mean, everybody knows what to do. I mean, if you're in the Ministry of Health and you're trying to improve health in your country, 
Well, look at what each person is doing. Are they doing their jobs? Are they meeting their numbers? Why aren't they meeting their numbers? Uh, what's what's ailing the population? Uh, what resources do we need to, to 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 help fix that? I mean, those like everybody sort of knows they need to do that. Yeah. The question is, it is just so hard, and so we have to appreciate the struggles of where many policymakers are and government people the forces acting on them. And then um, we, we can give, I think, more contextually relevant responses. Um, so it's, it's hard for me to say, it's not a cop out. I don't want you to think I'm- No, I'm no, but, um, no I, I think you make a solid point with that. And it's like, I know that quite well. And so in hindsight, you're like, huh, interesting. But one, one of the, th that actually got me thinking, right? So I've had the opportunity to be in quite a number of, you know, uh, countries where we've had interactions with like government and uh, people. And it's like some of the, what you are saying, actually not some, all of what you are saying is very true. I always say this thing and, and it's so funny that I ask this question because everybody knows like what to do. And I think that was my, not my, probably my last biggest aha moment. Cause mm -hmm. you know, you're young, you go in there and you're like, yes. But I'm just like, no, they know exactly what to do, but yeah. it doesn't get done because of A, B, C, D. And sometimes I wonder, right, in some, you know, some of these African countries that I have been into, and it's probably the same elsewhere, um, what it looks like to actually make the choices, what it looks like to actually do the things that will, you know, cause change, when sometimes it it's almost placed to your advantage not to do them because you don't exactly have to do them. Um, and also in some places we don't exactly have those like, um, if I can call them sort of like accountability measures that actually link, you know, the work of like some of these people in states to like the population. So it's like, if we don't do it, nothing happens to me. And yeah. I want what that requires because we are also not asking for, you know, a head of state who is like, cracking the whip in a completely vicious way but it's just like how we manage that is one of the things that I keep like thinking about to get people to actually do or consider doing or start doing little things that could become big over the long term rather than being like it's just too much yeah absolutely I mean it's a it's a process um it's one of the things that I have begun thinking more about uh, it's one of the things, if the foundation is interested, I would love to collaborate on some of the activities that we are working on uh, to see how we can um, go from the prosperity paradox, which is the book I was fortunate to co-author with Professor Christensen, to the prosperity process um, mm. so that we can provide more contextual, contextually relevant answers. Uh, there are many uh, uh, programs uh, we are uh, some we're piloting now, some we're going to be doing next year, where we, we truly want to try to answer that question. So that yeah. the next time we get it, again, I'm thinking I love analogies. I'm not very smart. So I like to just connect things to what people already understand. It is when I get asked that question, I say, okay, there are five main types of illnesses. Um, if you have this one, and these are your like capabilities, here's a path that might be helpful, right? We can now begin to talk about a process that can get you from your country, from poverty to prosperity. Um, so that's got to be the goal. 
Prosperity yeah. has to be the goal. There's, we don't have time to play small anymore. The little $50 cash transfer programs for people, and we're doing randomized control trials as if we're going to learn something that we've never seen before. You, you People don't have money. You're giving them a little bit of cash, and you're, you're studying them and stu studying people who don't have that cash, and you come up with a result that says, oh, they actually, uh, the kids did a little better and their the health improved a little bit. I mean, what were you expecting? These are poor people. They're not stupid. Um, what we need to do, because all of us are on our way out, someday I'm going to die. <laughs> I need to appreciate the fact that my time here is short. Mm. And, and what questions am I trying to answer? How can I have the most impact? Um, if I'm not asking the right questions, I'm afraid I'm going to spend my life trying to get the right answer to the wrong question, and I would have had very little impact. Uh, so it's very important that we we rethink uh, how we solve many of these challenges. Yeah, yeah. Ever so before you go, may I ask, what was the most fulfilling or memorable part of co-authoring the book? Um, you know, I will tell a quick story. I, I, um, on the day the book came out, January 15, 2019, Clay Christensen sat me down as we were all celebrating. Um, and he asked me a simple question. He said, all right, Afosa, what's next for you? And how can I help you get there? Hmm. And I think I was shocked because you had already given me this platform. You'd given me so much. And on the day we're celebrating what you've given me, you're asking, how can I give you more? And I think that for me was who Professor Christensen was. He was a giver. He was a man who, after he felt he had given enough, he gave you some more. Um, and I want to leave that with your uh, listeners, right? Is every day we experience life, we interact with people, some in a very transactional way, some uh, it's more long term. Um, but we have an opportunity to change the way people see the world and experience the world, uh, whether it's people who work with us or people in our families. And I think it's incumbent on us to figure out how do we want to live our lives, right? How do we want people to experience us? Um, how can we, this is one of the things Clay always did, how can we make people become better people? Um, that has to be the goal, right, of our lives is when people interact with us, have they become better as a result of knowing us, conversing with us, uh, sharing the same space as us? Have they become better people? Um, my hope is that I can continue in that legacy that Clay left for us. Uh, but I hope all the listeners, too, will, um, um, you know, if, if you don't take anything from today's session, I hope you'll take that and um, help people become better people. That's amazing. So I could probably speak to you for ages. Um, thank you, thank you so much for making the time to have this conversation with me. It means a whole lot to be able to go from reading your book to actually reaching out and you being responsive enough to have this chat with me. Um, I think it's it's part of the, I hope it is part of sort of the legacy, the impact that you are having on people because you just had one on me. So I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Thank you, Marie Noel. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And that was my chat with Efosa Ojomo. 
a man with a great mind and a heart for the continent of Africa. I thoroughly enjoyed that chat and trust that you did too. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and follow our channel wherever you listen to podcasts. As always, thanks so much for listening to the Brentis Foundation podcast with me, Marina Wellmokolo. It's been a pleasure sharing the space and time with you. And until next time, stay well.